Welcome to Everything Belongs, a podcast exploring the subtleties of living, creating, leading, and thriving while in the deep end of life. I'm your host, Madison Morgan, and here with me and my weekly guests, you can expect curious and brave conversations all centering around what it means to live into the process of awakening to our worth, wholeness, and power. We will talk about personal, collective, and spiritual freedom, riff on sovereign leadership, living in levity, and bridge the mystical with the down-to-earth and practical. There is not much we shy away from here because at this table, everything belongs. Today, I'm in conversation with the brilliant Kai Cheng Tom, and we go deep on topics around transformative justice, the drama triangle, being a victim, being a perpetrator, but then also being the rescuer and savior, which is definitely the role Kai Cheng and I tend to take in our lives dedicated to helping and supporting other people. We talk about where that desire to help and save comes from and how it can actually cause harm whenever we aren't really divesting from supremacist ideals. This conversation was potentially the most vulnerable conversation that I've had because we're talking about topics that Kai Cheng knows so much more about than I do. And it was a deep honor to have her on the podcast talking about transformative justice. She is a prolific writer, performer, community worker, somatic educator, and as she says, lasagna lover and wicked witch. She's the author of four award-winning books in various genres, including the novel Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, which was featured on Emma Watson's Feminist Book Club, which is so fucking cool, and the essay collection I Hope We Choose Love. Kai Chang has spoken and published widely on the topics of trauma and transformative justice, She's a lifelong student of healing and change work. Kai Chang is currently pursuing deep study and mindfulness meditation, breathwork facilitation, and conflict resolution, which as you'll hear is something that I share in common with Kai Chang. Although we've had vastly different experiences in life, coming from different backgrounds and finding ourselves in different groups of people doing radical work in the world on the far left and the far right, we both really find ourselves in deep contemplation over the most mystical and wise teachings, like the teachings of Jesus and teachings of grace and teachings of the middle way, the middle path. So we definitely dive into some heavy topics today that somehow we both have the capacity to laugh about and we talk about our own mistakes, our own errors, our own contempt, and how we are trying as people who facilitate conversation and people who want to see healing, we are divesting from those supremacist ideals that keep us in punishment programming and live a life of freedom and radical responsibility and standing up to injustice while regarding people with grace and how deeply complex that is and how much boundaries is needed. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and even if you don't agree with everything shared, I hope it opens up deeper contemplation because I think I'm speaking for myself here in that contemplative living is really the only way that we can do this deep work when we're always asking questions, always evaluating our own behavior and always asking what our boundaries need to be to be well and to create the most change in the world, to be the world we want to see. 
So let's dive in and hear this wonderful, rich conversation from Kai Chang. Kai Chang, thank you so much for coming on Everything Belongs. I have been, well, one, since meeting you, delighted to be getting to know you and your work, but also so excited for this conversation because you bring like so many textures to the conversation of social justice and healing and somatic healing and what it means to be a helper, what mean it means to be a person. <laughs> so I am delighted. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on, Madison. I feel like as soon as I met you as well, I was like, oh, I think we might be friends. And then I just didn't say anything because I want to let it grow. But uh, here we are. Yes. <laughs> uh, having having this ex- exciting conversation. I'm really, yeah, I'm, I find myself really drawn to um, everything you talk about online, offline, everything you're investigating and bravely posting about these days. Um, mm. I really feel such a deep resonance. So I'm excited to jump in. Me, me too. So just to give people context, they've obviously heard your bio and understand a little bit what you're about, but you do a lot of transformative justice work. And I actually shared with you, I'm like, I'm not sure I even understand what that means. And so could you give us some uh, a context of like what a day in the life might look like doing the work that you do and then why you love doing it in the first place? Absolutely. This is great. I love that you asked basically like, what is transformative justice and how do you do it? Uh, Because this is a key question right now um, when prison abolition, for example, has become mainstream-ish to talk about at least. Um, And lots and lots of folks in the social justice world are talking about using transformative justice as a tool for abolition, also using it in response to Me Too and uh, as a way of undoing the rape culture that we currently live in. So transformative justice, uh, just to say it kind of plainly, is a philosophy slash practice that grew out of restorative justice, which itself appeared in the 70s, 80s, but uh, was based on some very ancient lineages of uh, responses to conflict and harm in Indigenous communities here in North America, as well as in Oceania, so Australia, New Zealand, that kind of area. Uh, Those Indigenous folks uh, had developed many, many varied processes based on restoring communities uh, to a sense of well-being um, after a harm had occurred. And uh, I think people can very easily get mixed up with, oh, well, so that means restorative justice or transformative justice are the same, but they are not quite. And people also often think, well, mediation and TJ or RJ are the same, which they are uh, very much not, actually. Um, So if we think of the Western idea of mediation as like there are two sides in a conflict and we're going to bring these sides together and find a middle ground and a way forward Um, based on compromise or maybe collaboration, um, we would see restorative justice or transformative justice as um, maybe like a different dimension to that. So restorative justice and transformative justice are about uh, when harm has occurred. So we would acknowledge that a harm has occurred, which you wouldn't necessarily in mediation. Um, Transformative justice and restorative justice are also often Uh, shaped around the idea of a circle, as in community, as opposed to mediation, which tends to be focused on two people in conflict or two sides in conflict and then someone facilitating in the middle. Um, Restorative justice is this idea, and uh, I'm trying to be careful because I 
there's a lot of um, restorative justice scholars who, are, who speak very strongly about what, what restorative justice is not. Um, so it's the idea that harm should be named and uh, redressed, meaning the person who is harmed should get to speak about the impact. The person who did the harm should get to speak about what led them to do the harm and how they've been impacted. And the community in which the harm has taken place should also get to speak to the nature of the harm. Um, and then something should happen, basically. Uh, the idea is that the, I guess, offender or perpetrator ideally is taking responsibility in some way, uh, as is the community, for moving forward. And that could look like redress, that could look like an apology, but, um, you know, uh, scholars and practitioners of restorative justice are very clear, restorative justice is not about apologies, it is not about um, making things nice, it is not about um, necessarily replacing the prison system, it's this idea that harm should be named and addressed. Um, so that's restorative justice. And it can look like many, many different things because it uh, is contextual. And a lot of restorative justice has been adopted into uh, the court system and the criminal justice system here in North America and around the world. Um, it's often used as like an alternative form of sentencing. So after someone's been convicted of a crime, uh, then the restorative justice circle is used to determine what the sentence should be. It's often used as an alternative to prison, as in someone who is convicted of a crime then maybe makes an arrangement to do labor for a person that, or company that they've harmed. Um, often it does look something like mediation where there's a restorative conversation, but again, the focus is on um, healing rather than um, collaboration and moving forward usually. Um, so it can look like many different things. And it is, uh, to some extent, very integrated into the criminal justice system. Uh, where transformative justice breaks away from that um, is that where restorative justice practitioners and philosophers have often been clear that they don't necessarily want to replace the prison system and the criminal justice system, uh, transformative justice says we absolutely must uh, replace those systems. Um, which is not to say that, again, restorative justice can't do that. It's just that <laughs> transformative justice kind of grew as a response to the main body of uh, restorative practice, which they was saying was, was maybe less radical in that way. So transformative justice has many of the same ideas and processes, but the main one that it tends to add is that the conditions in which harm occurred should be changed following harm. So instead of just harm being named and addressed, part of that addressing is the community taking responsibility for shifting why harm happens. So let's give, let's take an example. Um, an easy example is, uh, let's say someone steals something. A restorative justice process would say, well, the person who owned the thing that was stolen should get to say what the impact was. The person who stole should get to say why they stole and what the impact was on them. And then the community might also talk about it in some way. And then, you know, if everyone was feeling so moved, the, the thief would uh, do some labor at the store or the or for the, in the home of the person they stole from. Uh, in transformative justice, this, the, a process might, might look similar, but it would um, maybe involve a heavier emphasis on why is a person needing to steal in the first place? And what are the conditions that were created that led someone to steal and allow someone to steal? Um, so there's a bit more of a, or in some cases, a lot more of a social justice focus. And uh, in a transformative justice process as well, uh, there usually would be a kind of a strong rejection of the idea that the police um, or that prison should be answers to these crimes, supposed crimes, I guess, and in, in restorative justice, maybe less of an emphasis on that. 
what does a day in the life of a transformative justice person or a story of justice person look like? I mean, so this is a very <laughs> funny thing, I think, because it looks like basically whatever anyone wants it to. Um, I guess uh, classically, you might think of someone like Mariam Kaba, who is a Black woman and an abolitionist, a very strong practitioner in the United States. And so she does a lot of activism and advocacy, and she actually facilitates processes where people who have done harm um, come to address that harm and where the communities where harm occurred take steps to make sure the harm doesn't happen again. Um, that would be kind of a classic uh, maybe understanding of what someone who is a transformative justice practitioner does every day. Um, but because people don't often know what transformative justice really is, um, because um, it, because transformative justice is opposed to uh, like the police and uh, these kinds of things have to de have to be developed um, to uh, fit the needs of each context. I think a lot of people are also just writing or dreaming, creating. Transformative justice can look like um, taking the philosophy of abolition and anti-punishment into one's friendships, you know, uh, devoting oneself to conversations in response to conflict rather than um, lawsuits or calling the police, that sort of thing. So transformative justice can look like a lot of things. And I mean, what do I do? Uh, I guess a little bit of all of that. I'm currently studying conflict resolution and mediation as well to see how these things can be formalized and uh, combined with TJRJ. Um, but I will say, to me, a lot of the work right now is clarifying to people what could a world that was based on transformative justice look like? That was really long. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was so good. Thank you so much. I, a really big piece of my work that I don't speak of is that, well, a big piece of my history that I don't speak of often is that mediation and conflict resolution are actually a huge part of my training. That's actually what I was trained in in college. And, you know, it's, it's no doubt between that and my 11th house stellium, which is like basically five planets in the Aquarian house that are like all in Leo. So like the need <laughs> to talk about these sorts of things. It, I get so excited when you're talking because the, you know, people who are listening potentially know my story in evangelicalism, but that very question of like, well, I, to back it up, I was called out a lot for sin whenever I was in the church. And whenever I started healing and doing trauma therapy, I started realizing why these so-called sins or adaptive strategies and these behaviors that weren't serving me actually existed in my life. And my question was, why aren't we addressing why these conditions even create an environment where these behaviors would become a problem? And it was almost like that conversation, like no one wanted to look at that. But if we really want to seek true change, just behavior and punishing behavior is truly not enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, since when has punishment ever stopped harm from happening, right? Like it, it adds to harm by its nature and then, and then people just often just get upset and they do more harm in response to punishment. It's, I really feel you there. Yeah. How, how did you come to finding this work? Ooh, well, <laughs> mostly through being in a lot of conflict. <laughs> I'm a Pisces, but my moon is in Virgo. <laughs> I'm a moon. I'm a sun in Virgo, moon in Pisces. Oh, you, well, I, that is a lot of resonance. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, that explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> a lot, yeah. Before you go on, what's your rising? Because now I must know. It's Leo. Leo. Okay. 
Cool. Keep it all going. makes sense now, doesn't it? It all makes sense. Yes. Um, how did I find? Yeah. Well, to be honest, um, so I ran away from home briefly as a teenager. I, I then ran right back because I had nowhere to go. But uh, I ran away from home and uh, and then later ran away again and, and stayed away and uh, <laughs> fell in with either the right crowd or the wrong crowd, depending on how you see it. I became a queer anarchist in Montreal here in Canada. And the anarchist community <laughs> in queer Montreal uh, is and uh, was and is very, very intense. Um, we had strong political ideals. Um, activism uh, was very encouraged. I mean, like hardcore direct action, like um, possibly illegal <laughs> actions were very, very encouraged. And I still actually take a lot of um, wisdom and grounding from those radical activist ideas. Um, but also, um, as uh, groups of uh, angry and idealistic young people tend to be, we were also uh, very high conflict. And intimate relationships, working partnerships, organizing relationships would explode and fall apart, explode and fall apart. Um, and this too was actually how I found my way into uh, trauma therapy and healing work as well as, you know, looking at the attachment wounds that led us there. Um, but something I realized uh, was missing from uh, my, my original educational background is in social work. And then I left that to be like a more of an embodiment practitioner, but something that's often missing from embodiment work and from psychotherapy is this notion of what to do after the harm has occurred. You know, we know how to work with an individual to heal themselves. Almost no one knows how to work with the perpetrator. And here's the thing, all of us are perpetrators to some extent. Mariam Kaba has this great quote that I think she also takes from, she adapts from a different writer. Um, no one comes into harm as a perpetrator. No one is introduced to harm as a perpetrator. Um, but we all then kind of bring that into ourselves and start to enact what's been done to us to a greater or lesser extent. And so um, that's a long way of saying people were being really awful around me and I was being really awful to other people and I wanted to know how do we fix it? And that's how I found myself here. I so appreciate how there is a desire to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And in all of your writing, that's so apparent that there is this deep curiosity that drives you forward, that a surface level answer is certainly not enough. And it's like, let's get to the root of this. And also what I really appreciate, and, you know, I, I hadn't known anyone who had ever self-identified as an anarchist before meeting you. Really? And I really, oh my gosh. yeah, I really haven't. And I mean, maybe I have, but they'd never told me <laughs> based on my history, they probably wouldn't have wanted to. And so I'm that idea and the, the programming I received is destructive and dangerous and so, so bad. And what's interesting about the two worldviews that we come from mine being, well, actually you have experience being evangelical as well, prior, prior. to being yeah. an anarchist. Yeah. But I was so intensely evangelical that these could be seen as polar opposites, yet everything you're saying about this conflict and harm perpetuating, harm perpetuating, harm, it it shows up in so many groups of people who are wanting to do good in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that wherever I've ever been a part of a group that's trying to do something good and, and have a, a shared cause, there's often harm not getting addressed and people not knowing how to deal with it and not being equipped to deal with it. And 
it's not just in one group. This isn't just like a right or left issue or Mm -hmm. a Christian issue or an activist issue. It's a human thing. And so I'm curious in all of your, your journeying, what you have found to be the solve for this, the, the Um, medicine. I mean, if I really, really knew medicine, I think I would be famous and rich (laughs) beyond belief. Uh, but uh, alas, I am, I am, I neither know the, you know, the true medicine, nor do I, uh, nor am I rich and famous beyond all belief. But uh, I will <laughs> say I really resonate with what you're saying about it's not just a right or left problem. And I, I, I'm really digging some of the uh, posts and writing you've been doing lately about this, right? Like there are some fascinating parallels that I think you and I both see in the social justice activist world, for me also the anarchist world, and the evangelical world, or like the really Mm -hmm. um, conservative worlds too. This uh, drive to do good, um, which is there, you know, um, I think what I like about uh, this burgeoning friendship between us is we both see this, right? The good in the evangelical world, the good in the social justice world, the desire to do better, um, and then something weird happens, right? It goes sideways. Um, We get caught in like this sort of purity spiral, both on the left and on the right. Um, And we start accusing each other of things, um, usually very small things, sin or being problematic, right? Um, And then we create this atmosphere of intense control and fear. And yet somehow underneath all of that control and fear, really, really intense harm is happening, but it's not the harm necessarily that we are talking about, right? And so, of course, I'm talking about intimate partner violence. I'm talking about child abuse. I'm talking about workplace abuse, you know, deep racism, uh, sexism, queerphobia, all that sort of stuff. That happens in almost, that's happened in every community I've ever seen, you know? Um, And especially the ones that uh, claim goodness the hardest, there seems to be this flip the shadow side, where that secret, secret um, abuse is happening and then it boils and it boils and it comes to a point and then everything explodes. Um, And I've seen that in activist communities. I've seen it in churches. I've seen it in workplaces. What is that that about? Well, I don't know. I would love to know your thoughts. Some of the pieces I'm collecting are like, I think that um, we sense that the shadow side is there and we go toward purity culture as a way of trying to resolve that, right? Um, so other people are bad, the devil is in you, the evil lurks in me, you know, the oppressor lives in all of us, so we've got to shut it down, lock it down, invigilate other people's behaviors. As soon as they make a stake, mistake, we'll call them out. And that intense control, I think it means that we, we then become more secretive about, you know, the things we know we're doing that are bad, right? The little sins, <laughs> you know, um, the secret indulgences, these things that are problematic. And then because we're doing bad things in secret and we're so engaged in calling other people out in public, our secrets grow and they grow. And we have no place to put that loneliness and that shame. And I mean, you know, what do we know about shame? Is it, uh, it can take us our behavior to some places that we, we really didn't expect and that we really don't want. Um, and it becomes this cycle where we're, we're feeding that, uh, that, uh, that monster, that shame monster um, in secret. So that's kind of, I think what I think is happening. And so maybe the solve is like to let go a purity culture, right? Like to, to allow imperfection while still holding on to our ethical center. Um, and then I really hope that uh, this thing about transformative justice could also be an answer, right? Like um, that people can do wrong, but it's not just an individual that does wrong. It's a system that creates harm, which is not to say individuals are not responsible for their, responsible for their behavior. They are. Um, 
but there are reasons for their behavior. So maybe if we can acknowledge that um, and then shift from like, well, punishment will take care of this bad individual and get rid of them forever, which of course it has never done in human history. Maybe we can, um, we can address harm in a way that's truly healing. So these are some pieces. I also think a lot about grace and honestly about, uh, about Jesus. <laughs> I'm nervous about saying this because it's so off brand for me as like an anarchist or whatever. But I think <laughs> about grace all the time, right? Like maybe, maybe there was something of a radical answer in there. I think of Jesus as mm-hmm. an anarchist because an anarchist is someone Definitely. who, right? They break the law to do good in freedom. <laughs> um, he, you know, uh, he had this idea that no matter what our sins, as long as we, you know, turned our hearts toward goodness, that we might still be forgiven, that we still deserved a kind of love, no matter, you know, who we who we were, or that we might still receive love, even if we didn't deserve it. That's grace, mm-hmm. right? And this is, you know, something I think that activists could also learn from, um, that uh, no matter how problematic we are, we are still human and so still divine. And maybe what, uh, you know, the conservative right uh, or religious right could learn is that uh, we're all deserving of grace, no matter who we are. Yeah. You just said so many things that are like deeply my passions, like particularly around shame, Mm -hmm. because what you were talking about of the, the thing we like that we are disgusted by that we're afraid of becoming, we internalize and then it grows inside of us. Shame and disgust are two sides of the same coin. And so when we, I, you know, whenever we look at other people and we judge them, which is what all sides right now are doing, mm-hmm. we are saying, I can, could never be that. And by doing that, we cut ourselves off from the part of our humanity that's really capable of doing and being anything. Yep. And so this past week, we're recording this right after the election it's we're st- we still don't know we're recording this in the in the limbo of not knowing who the united states president will be and monday right before the election i posted this long post about the things that i did whenever i was an evangelical and someone shared the post and was like super disgusted like they were basically being like i can't even read this about being angry and triggered at the things that this person used to do and i'm so happy that she's finally like seen the light so to speak mm-hmm. and i was like interesting you think you're better than me. (laughs) Interesting. You think that you aren't doing these things right now. You have no idea. And this has been what's really, I mean, I've been, I've had so many emotions this week of anger and people who don't get it and blah, 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 all the, all the judgment. But I think what I'm grateful for having been a far right conservative evangelical working at a pregnancy care center to help people not get abortions, Mm. like all of these, you know, all of these things were rooted in really wanting to do good and being really far away from having context. Um, I also think cultural narcissism needs to be addressed. I think that's actually like covert and overt narcissism is a whole nother subject of why this is happening because shame is actually deeply tied up in that dynamic. But I found it so interesting the amount of women who responded saying, thank you so much. I've been so ashamed and living and hiding about all of these things, not knowing where to go, not knowing who to talk to, because I'm not welcome in certain communities because of my past. Mm-hmm. And, or I don't feel welcome. You know, I don't know that that's totally true. Mm-hmm. But what I thought was so interesting was the contempt that that person had at yeah. me mm-hmm. and that they truly thought 
they could never be, you know, in air quotes, someone like me. Mm. And really the root of all of that behavior, right, left, you know, Christian, anarchist, whatever that it is, it, to me, it's the same wound. It's the same issue. And people don't, people don't love when I talk about the nuances of this, but I really personally think the issue is like whenever we are away from our essential core, our truth, whether that manifests as grandiosity or chronic shame, we're still on the pendulum of lack. We're still away from our true self. We're away from our center. And so, you know, some teachers, um, I don't know her name, Narcissism Recovery Center on Instagram. She used to be Racism Recovery Center, but has since expanded her work. She talks about that grandiosity and covert or is it, yeah, overt narcissism, the obvious, you know, the bad guy that we all are like, the bad guy. Um, The wound being the same as the covert narcissist, the one who props it up. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me, whenever I look at evangelical culture and this worship of Donald Trump happening right now and this overlooking of really toxic behaviors, it reminds me a lot of the narcissistic codependent relationships I've been in mm. and how the only way out of that for me, because both behaviors, this we love to pretend we're not in embodying both dynamics, but if we're in the dynamic, we're doing both. Yep. Yep. Um, we're, we're causing harm and receiving harm. And the only way out of that dynamic was to heal from disconnection from my true self. Yeah. Yeah. And to heal from shame. That is super real. Yeah. Ah, that's a whole, (laughs) that's really big. What are your thoughts? (laughs) I mean, I have so many, but I love, I love, love, love um, your articulation of how um, the shame wound and the narcissistic wound are one and the same, right? Like, again, two, two sides of the same coin. Um, and then I think it's really bold and also really important that you said, yes, so when we're in the codependent dynamic, we are doing both, which doesn't mean that we're doing both to the same measure, right? Like, exactly. you know, we're not, this is not to victim blame, or, right? To yes. pretend that power doesn't exist because it does. Um, but I And think power that, is the key factor in that too, of where it becomes power over. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and we have to be responsible for power, right? Like we can't just say, well, we're all doing the same thing. So we're all equally responsible. We're not right. But um, it becomes key, right? Like it becomes so important to be able to say, right. So there's a power dynamic. And also if, even if I'm, you know, on the lower end of the power dynamic, I still might be doing something that's contributing to this cycle. And we see this, you know, uh, it's funny now you're making me think about my intimate relationships too. <laughs> I'm thinking about how um, I have carried par- behaviors that my past partners used to do to me and that I found awful and terrible or sometimes even abusive. And they sometimes emerge from my own body in these terrifying yeah. ways. Right. I think also about um, marginalized communities um, that have been historically, you know, really, really, uh, oppressed, wounded on the on the receiving end of terrible, terrible things, um, and then in future and future have been engaged in conflicts where you know within that community some of those same harms are being repeated. And I'll just use the community that I'm part of to to kind of to own this. Like I'll say, like in queer community, we talk all the time about um, how abusive straight culture is to us, and it is. Uh, the power dynamic is there, 
But then within the queer community, there is racism, there is fat phobia, there is transphobia, transmisogyny. Um, so why is that? Right? Like that's really interesting to look at to say, okay, the thing that we we said we say is a monster is also the thing we see in the mirror, and we have to be able to face that uh, um, if we're going to move forward. And I think what you say about healing shame is key, right? Mm-hmm. Like in order to look at that monster in the eye and say that's me, and maybe yeah. there's a different way forward. Yeah, I think that's and to to say that's me and I'm worthy of grace and I'm worthy of love because how could we extend and I think that's what was so impactful to me about that person having such contempt for me is like what I can understand how someone could per, like perpetuate so much harm because I have done it mm-hmm. and in grieving and facing how much I hate that truly how much I hate that. And also knowing that it originated in narcissistic abuse in my childhood and knowing Mm. that originated in my grandfather being a child molester Mm. and being a pedophile and seeing, you know, I, it's, we have to know that we came by so many of these behaviors, honestly. Yeah. So there's, there's so much grace and we also have the power to do something about them. Yes. It is that it's that really difficult. I and mean, I'm not saying that happens all at once because I don't think it does. I don't think it does at all. Um, but that grace comes whenever we are actually moving through our process and under and having understanding of how we got handed these behaviors and dynamics. Anyone in a white supremacist culture has internalized racism. Anyone in a patriarchal culture has heteronormative programming all of us, not, not just straight people, (laughs) like even undoing in my relationship with my partner, my own hatred of the body Mm. of my own disgust with vaginas. I was taught that that doesn't, that didn't come by me naturally. I was taught that. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I, if I embody that, that knee jerk reaction of disgust, towards my own desire that means that I also embody that towards others Mm -hmm. and and also there's grace and compassion because the the shame isn't going to I should say the punishment programming punishing myself and denying that and suppressing it and then making everyone else the bad guy Mm -hmm. doesn't actually end the violence Uh, it doesn't it doesn't and here's the thing. It's like, I would love, I have a question for you about this, Madison, because I think it takes yeah. a lot to say and embrace this kind of thinking and being and embodiment, right? Like this grace uh-huh. for ourselves means grace for the other. Grace for the other means grace for myself. People don't like that <laughs> always. No, <you> know? <laughs> <laughs> don't like it. They don't like me for it sometimes. <laughs> um you know, I, so I'm a trans woman and um, the trans community is, you know, deeply embedded in everything I do. Um, and I recently wrote a couple of pieces about trans exclusionary radical feminists, right? So, you know, an example of trans exclusionary radical feminism for those listening would be, you know, maybe some of the stuff that JK Rowling has been saying recently about, uh, yeah. you know, trans women being bad <laughs> for, for cis women. And um you know, in these pieces I was writing, I, I was really thinking about um, it's the fear, right, that leads uh, cisgender women to radical feminism that's, you know, exclusionary towards us um, and trying to be compassionate about this. 
And of course, there was a lot of, you know, sort of backlash from uh, certain radical cis feminists. But the backlash that was fascinating to me uh, was that it was, you know, was the backlash that came from trans people that said, you know, how dare you? Uh, you're, you're being a traitor. Uh, you know, you, we don't need to give compassion to these people who are murderers of our, of our, of our kind and, and stuff like this. And so, uh, you know, I really, I really try and face myself with this question, right? Like, what's the difference between compassion um, that is um, kind and, and giving of grace and the kind um, of codependence that is letting people off the hook. You yes. know, when, how do we call people into responsibility for what they're doing while also acknowledging that we could be them if not for, you know, random circumstances? Yeah. How do we face the anger of people around us who, who are triggered uh, by, by, by our compassion? I'm assuming you're just asking me to speak from my own experience and not for oh, all yes. beings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> In my experience, um, I have been someone who overlooks harm far too long Mm. for the sake of grace. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that I'm really coming into with. I understand and have compassion for the violence of my childhood. Mm. And I know why my parents behaved how they did. I, I understand their poverty. I understand their trauma. I understand why it's difficult to leave marriages that are abusive. You know, I, I understand all of these things and oh, I see the humanity in it and I have compassion and no, I will not tolerate the behavior and no, I will not be around it. Mm-hmm. And no, I, I will not continue to go back towards it. And that doesn't mean that every now and then I don't try to engage with one of my parents and then I'm like super bummed out at the dynamic and like nothing has changed school. Mm-hmm. Um, but that to me is similar like with my ex-husband, you know, there were dynamics in the relationship that I don't care for. Mm-hmm. And I also, things I didn't see until I had exited the relationship because I was too close up to really fully understand what was going on. And I even had self-judgment of how dare I not see this with the, like this being the work I do and how dare I not have a boundary. And, but we, I think we know things when we can know them. Mm-hmm. And I do think everyone comes by their programming, honestly, and it doesn't mean I have to tolerate it. Like I can, I can see, like, say if someone, this has happened, you know, wants to work with me mm-hmm. and in that initial call, I, I, you know, get a feel for, you know, I don't think this is right. I feel like that discernment doesn't mean that I don't have regard for them or love for them, but I know it's not a right fit. Mm-hmm. And I know that giving my energy and attention to this relationship isn't going to be of highest good for either of us. So I, you know, I decline and say, no, thank you. And that's, I use that because it's a non-charged example of just like what a no thank you feels like for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then diverting my attention. And so t- I'm trying to also use the understanding of narcissistic feed. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, people who have narcissistic tendencies have a core wound of shame and being away from themselves and needing to source from other people, then starving the source is actually the most kind thing I can do for all parties involved to no longer give the emotional energy, to no longer give the attention. And although that might cause someone to feel immediate discomfort and pain, and they might be angry about it, that actually cuts off that addictive cycle. 
mm-hmm. for both parties. So for me, I'm like, I, re- I love you. And also I will not participate in being the source of this toxicity any longer. Yes. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that with, um, and I guess it's accidentally transformative justice of how do I no longer feed these dynamics um, of supremacy, which is really just what it is, of supremacy in my life, whenever that's the foundation of all of my relationships up until very recently. <laughs> so, I'm like, you know, uh, I think if we don't, if we don't have grace, like we're kind of fucked. That's I, the shortest, I guess that's the most simple answer. I just got to it there at the end. I don't know if anything I said is right, but that's, that's where I'm at currently. I love that because I think it works in both directions. Um, like, so, you know, I was like, well, you know, am I having too com- too much compassion for uh, transphobic feminists? And also, how do I deal with the anger of my community when I do something that is politically different from, you know, the party line or whatever? And I think what you just said was um, to have grace, right, that flows in all directions, including toward myself, and to cut off the dynamic that says either to, you know, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, well, we're all women and I just want to be good with you. So your behavior is okay. We can cut that off and say, you know, I understand where your fear comes from, but, you know, actually you still can't be transphobic. Um, And I can also turn to my community and say, you're allowed to have the feelings that you have about people who have oppressed you or discriminated against you, but I don't have to have those same feelings. And I won't participate in a codependence that says, just because I said something different from what you're saying means that we have to be in this dynamic of you punishing me. Um, Yeah. yeah, I love that. It's, it is difficult. You know, it is difficult to um, a lot the bridge that I often hold is for people who are leaving evangelical culture and, you know, either discovering their queerness or discovering they have really radically different beliefs than their families. And in doing that, um, I really wrestle with how to have relationships with people who would prefer I not have rights yeah, and would yeah. in like my own family who would, who sees me as damned to hell mm. and how can I allow that to exist within them in the same way that if a man were to look at me with eyes like the male gaze that is destructive Mm -hmm. and damaging Mm -hmm. how that doesn't actually belong to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that actually belongs to that person that that disgust doesn't have to become my shame. Mm -hmm. I think that I try to adopt that. I'm not good at it, but I try to adopt the the idea (laughs) of it as I move through this. So it becomes tricky. And, you know, I think of, I did an interview with Sarah Durham Wilson, who does the maiden to mother journey Mm. and something about the fierce mature mother feels really relevant here Yes, of like, I love you and no, I will Mm -hmm. not tolerate this. Mm -hmm. I love you and I will protect myself and protect my children. That that's the kind of energy I want to bring forward while still remaining open to feedback because I hold a lot of privilege Mm-hmm. that being a bridge is really important to me. Absolutely. And so discerning where to divert my energy <laughs> is, is something that I'm currently navigating is what relationships that with, with people who are causing a lot of harm, do I stay in, in a boundary way? Because I, I am a, a bridge 
in those relationships and when does it cross my boundaries? Yes. Yeah. That's the trick, isn't it? Like being the bridge and not becoming um, either of the sides that you're bridging. Um, the pull. <laughs> yeah. And then to not be the savior, right? Like it's actually not my job to save everyone. And it, yeah. And I think, um, I don't know about you, Madison, but I find it incredibly difficult not to throw <laughs> myself into the savior role. Oh, <laughs> I built my whole work upon it. And I, I literally have been a missionary to be it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Um, um, and there's something fascinating about that, right? Like, what is the need to be a savior about? I mean, we could talk about that for an hour or several. What's that di- triangle dynamic, right? There's the yes. there's a dynamic of this. What is that called? Um, the drama triangle. Yes. Could you name it just for us? Uh, do you know it? Yes, I think so. I think I'm getting this right. It's uh, it's Cartman's drama triangle, and I think the classic formation of it is victim persecutor and then in the middle point of the triangle the rescuer or savior exactly Um, yeah which is relevant to I think uh, everything we've been talking about everything (laughs) because to and this is what's really interesting and I find sometimes difficult with the activism space is I because of a number you know I'm a white cis femme middle class queer woman who no one would know I was queer unless I told them because Mm. I'm stereotypically not the right look for what our culture thinks is a queer woman. (laughs) And because of that, I'm often told that I need to be that bridge, need to be putting myself in that line of fire, so to speak. Mm. And I think there, there are places where I'm like, fuck yeah, that is necessary. And then I do question my own saviorism Mm-hmm. is still supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that's why I think that narcissist shame cycle, that is a supremacist cycle. There's there's a hierarchy. So if we make that a circle, what is my role? Yes. Yes. Um, and I, there's something about that. Um, like the, the thing about being a savior that is supremacist is that it's, um, is that the, is that the care goes one way. You know, yeah. and that's complicated because that's also a form of oppression, right? Like women and people of color, are, have, we have it constantly drilled into us. You have to give care and it only goes one way. The care flows yeah. out of you and you're this endless fountain, you know, and everyone else will receive. Um, and sometimes because that's, you know, such a source of pain for us, I think that also becomes, you know, our, our also like a route to supremacy. And I think that's where we see a lot of like white woman a saviorism and yeah, in missionary work, in social work also, right? Like all this, we're going to go into poor communities or racialized communities and rescue them because that's the way that women are taught to have power, particularly white women, but also I think mm. all women helping is the way is the route to power. And, um, and there's something so, so interesting and radical about like, um, what if we also received, right? Like what if receiving help is also a route to power? As long as we're doing both, giving mm. and receiving, like letting ourselves be saved while we save. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe there's something else about that. We'll have to ask Jesus, hey? Like, uh, yeah. Did he need the people? <laughs> uh, did he need the Christians to save him? There's something about that. Yeah. We'll have to, I'll have to write a book. Well, they did. But they did not. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he super fucked that up. <laughs> and then they like distorted his entire message. I can only imagine how upset I would be. I, you know, you've written a little bit about this programmed desire to please, and you just spoke to it a little bit. And I want to read um, a, a short quote that I got from an essay that you wrote. And Mm -hmm. you said, I describe myself as psychologically precocious, eager to help and please. And then you go on to mention the unique intersection of trauma, racial identity, queer identity, giftedness, just innate earnestness that kind of (laughs) coalesced to be this brilliant facilitation, able to see things from so many different sides, able to hold space for so many people. And then we're kind of getting into the shadow of that, right? Like they're mm-hmm. the program shadow of that is like some of the, some of that's a way to have power. And also we need people to hold space and help. And there's a, there's a double bind. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you've reconciled this um, because I mean, giftedness is, we can describe that in a number of ways, but giftedness can also come by having trauma that you've had to reconcile too soon. Giftedness can be something that is intellectual. And I'm curious how you've reconciled that, um, that having to mature fast Mm. and giving so much of yourself with knowing that this is also an area of deep healing yourself. Oh, another thing we might have in common. Hey, (laughs) maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah, giftedness. Well, you know, um, so I'm I'm deep into fairy tales, right? Fairy tales and superhero mythology, all these nerd things that I love so much. Um, and uh, in most mythologies, uh, you were speaking about this too, I think, in a, in, a, in a more psychological way in our pre-podcast chat, Madison, every gift can also be a curse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Jesus's gift of miraculous healing was also this curse that made people then, you know, crucify him. Um, but also we could think about, um, you know, the gift of the witch, uh, which then leads her to be burned. Suspiciously way, similar to Christ-like way, right? Um, yeah. The gift of the superhero is that he or she or they um, will always be separate from the rest of the population. They'll always have, you know, this burden of a destiny. And this is what it is to have gifts. And of course, all of us have a gift of some kind. And those of us who are gifted with healing um, or with facilitation or space holding um, or motherhood, you know, parenthood, um, the curse of that is that uh, it becomes our identity to ourselves, which means we can't see ourselves outside of helping, healing, facilitating, holding, and also to the world, meaning they don't know how to value us outside of the things we can do for them. Mm. They see something beautiful and useful um, and they use it because that's what the world is programmed to do in this patriarchal culture, to use up beautiful and useful things and not to think about sustainability or what is that person getting back. Um, and then we don't know what to do with ourselves when we, <laughs> when, we, when we aren't in the saving role. I laugh because, uh, you know, as soon as I um, saw a therapist, the first time was when I was 14. I was like, that will be my job. I'm going to do it. <laughs> the first time I did yoga, I thought, I'm going to become a yoga teacher. The first time I did martial arts, I thought I'm going to become a master of this and teach other people. I cannot stop myself. <laughs> I have to, you know, this compulsion <laughs> in me. And I think what I've learned is like, I can't, um, I can't go cold Turkey. There isn't value into cutting off that part of myself. Right. And yeah. so many superhero and fairy tales, there's this point where the hero was given the option to give up the gift. Right. Um, I think in a bunch of Spider-Man movies, there's this moment where, you know, he can give up his spider powers or whatever. 
But the hero comes to learn that they actually need to be the hero. Um, Mm. Giving away one's power is not the answer to the curse of power. The answer is the wise and uh, and like um, discernment, like discerning use of power. And so that's what I'm trying to do is like learn how to be a teacher and healer, but also receive teaching and healing. And then also try to figure out um, what am I, what am, what I'm doing with the time that I'm not healing or holding, you know, like um, are there moments and places where I can just be, you know, like my silly dorky self uh, still, still figuring that one out. <laughs> yeah. Well, it come to me, I'm hearing just like, being a person, getting to be a human, getting to be in, in that, you know, that savior, victim, persecutor dynamic, there's still those elevations of hierarchies of power. And whenever we get to facilitate and then be human with those people and have needs mm-hmm. and have wants and mm-hmm. have boundaries, mm-hmm. um, because that often, like for me, it looks like exploit, the self-exploitation yeah. as an Im- imprint of trauma, self-exploitation, then exploiting my own personal journey for the sake of everyone, which I've been doing for the past six years online. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I'm so good at it. And, <laughs> yeah. and also, uh, what about boundaries? What is sacred? What, yeah. what do I get to keep for me? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, um, I have a really, really wonderful friend who is an indigenous uh, pipe carrier. He's a healer in his community and he was, talking to me about really offering me a gift in saying like, you know, who asks for help versus who demands? Um, and mm. also who are we just giving help to because we think they need it. Right. And that assumption of contempt. Yeah. Yeah. The assumption. Um, and I'm trying to really work on this. Like um, I help or heal when someone explicitly asks me. Um, and if the ask isn't right, then I say no really bad at that. (laughs) And I think you were talking about this earlier too, right? Like when we get that call, we do the conversation, is this the right client for me? Um, Because there's, there's something really sacred about like, um, is this relationship right? Right? Like, is this the right container for someone else's healing and, um, and self-exploitation, I think also cheapens the work that we do for other people sometimes Mm -hmm. um, because we're trying to run away from our lack of knowledge about who we would be if we weren't healers by healing other people. And we need to know who we are in order to do really rooted healing work. And what you just said speaks so much to consent is some people we've been conditioned to think they need our help. Yeah. And that might, that's actually contemptuous. That's actually viewing them as less and incapable. And, you know, I, I say a lot because it's my program, Awaken Her Souls, hashtag is I am my own responsibility. And I inevitably get a lot of high achievers who think everything is their responsibility. And then we have to, (laughs) we have to deprogram that because that's the wound is that you believe everything is your responsibility, that I believe everything is my responsibility, including other people. Mm -hmm. And that's that enmeshment. That's that codependence. That's that um, shame. And also that's a hierarchy of, a lot of us believe other people are our responsibility because we actually don't believe they're capable and we deem ourselves as more capable. And that's not the same thing as seeing someone as sovereign and powerful. And, you know, with my clients, I don't, I don't do the same therapeutic work you do. My work is trauma informed, but certainly I'm not doing trauma 
work with my clients. Uh, my clients are a lot of them are therapists, actually, like about <laughs> half of my clients end up being people who facilitate deep work for other people who are like, interesting, <laughs> right? Um, I didn't intend to work with mostly therapists and I don't work with only therapists, but I find that especially this year, it's been like, where do I go (laughs) to, because learning how to hold space and intellectually learning the what's wrong with people and how to, how to fix people isn't the same thing as seeing people as capable and sovereign and whole and divinely human. And I really do think that there's a shift in there that I have seen whenever I shifted from my client work to being, I need to fix, I need to help to being, I'm, I'm really good at this job yeah. and these people are capable of healing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. The people's, what they achieve, what they grow into, how they heal exponentially different than whenever I had contempt. Absolutely. Absolutely. The whole relationship changes. Like when, when we give uh, when we give honor and uh, recognition to the power that's in people to heal themselves, um, mm-hmm. and that that takes humility because it feels good to be the fixer and savior. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, all this to me feels like that medicine might be accepting our full humanity mm-hmm. and other people's full humanity. It's really difficult right now to want to do that. Yeah. Well, especially <laughs> right now, <laughs> because like, I mean, it's all, it's really easy to say like, oh, uh, I trust in people's personal power, but then they go and do stuff that's like, oh, why are you doing that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I made a post a couple months ago that said, I trust you. Mm-hmm. And then everyone was like, QAnon. And I was like, that's not what I meant, you know? <laughs> and, and also like, can I look and a lot of that is disgust at my younger self for being so wrong, mm. you know, and <laughs> can I accept that for me, it always comes back to, can I accept my 19 year old self being a missionary mm. and both being in that cycle of abuse and then going and doing it like all of the ways I'm angry at the church, you know, big C church, American Mm. church, I perpetuated like all of that as well. Mm. And that's really, uh, that's really uncomfortable. I think that's, that's again, grace. That's maybe the only word I have about it. (laughs) We can only come back to that at the end of the day, right? And we could call it grace, um, loving kindness as well, compassion, yeah, the whole humanity, the whole humanity. We have to be able to hold the whole humanity of ourselves mm. or we can do that for other people or maybe at the same time, right? Like it it can't be yeah. one or the other. I, I'm more and more convinced of this uh, as time goes by. Yeah, you you wrote um, in an Instagram and Facebook post about, you know, the bad other and the othering and you made it sound like in that post, which I'll link in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it. That is compassion, curiosity, and safety that helps break down this idea of other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know this is a really big topic, but I'm curious if there's anything that 
Um, I actually have it here. I wanted to read from it. You said the skills of feeling into safety, curiosity, and compassion have not been encouraged in contemporary activist culture. A power rhetoric around attack, conversion, and rescuing has been developed, and in some cases repurposed from older religious and ethical traditions, which, of (laughs) course, that serves on our basic instincts for self-preservation. And then I'm, I'm skipping a couple of things. And you go down to say, I believe that there is an essential element of our own dignity and personhood that can be reclaimed in in an attempt to understand the other. Yeah, I said that, huh? (laughs) You said that. It is really good. This dignity. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you live your own dignity throughout your life? Mm-hmm. sometimes I do it better than others <laughs> um I think there's a lot of moving parts to dignity right like um one is uh connection to ourselves so that grace piece we were talking about I am okay I might have done some really awful things but inside of me something is okay connection to the other um they're okay. Now I'm getting into I'm okay, they're okay stuff. But <laughs> like I'm okay, you're, I'm divine, you're divine. And you might have done some terrible things also. Um, I might have done terrible things to you. You might have done terrible things to me. But there's still something that we have in common. Mm. And then through that connection to the divine, or if we're not uh, religious or spiritual, we might just say connection to greater meaning. Um, because I know that I'm human and that's all right. And because I know that you're human and that's all right, then that means something about who we are together and what it means to be living and sharing this weird world together. Um, and, and then all those th- three things go in a loop, right? Like they feed each other. Um, mm. And um, I think we can get pretty good at one or two of those things. It's hard to be good at all three of them at the same <laughs> yeah. time, right? Connected to spiritual source and to our own goodness, um, but not to the others. Connected to the other and to spiritual source, but uh, not to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess what I'm saying there about activist culture is activism uh, has done a really good job of, um, at least, you know, leftist North American activism has done an amazing job of saying, um, you know, the higher meaning is justice for all. That's great. That's very good. Um, It's also really good at saying, and we're valid, right? Queer people are valid. Uh, Older people are valid. Fat people are valid. Black Lives Matter, they do. Like, it's so important to be able to say this. Um, And then maybe, (laughs) maybe activist culture is not as good at saying the other is also um, worth something, right? And, Mm -hmm. um, if they don't immediately convert to our views, they're still worth something. But that's really key uh, because if we start to believe that they're monsters, that's when we do all the stuff we were talking about earlier. About well, then we cut off the part of ourselves that identifies with them. And so when I when I when I think about reclaiming dignity through getting to know the other, uh, this is what I mean: is um, it's good for the other, like it's good for our enemies that we're compassionate to them for sure. But it's also really good for us because they hold a piece of our humanity that I think we need. Um, That's interdependence. They have a piece of us. We have a piece of them. And to get the piece of us, (laughs) we have to give them the piece of them, right? We have Mm. to give them their divinity that's in us to get our divinity that's in them. We're inextricably connected. Yeah. And it's hard. Like the 
the safety piece is key, right? Like, because I think it, it's kind of, it would be too easy to say, just love everybody and forgive everybody. That sort of spiritual bypass. Yeah. Um, but we can't love someone. It's really hard to when they're actively harming us, right? Mm-hmm. So there has to be some safety. There has to be compassion, like that understanding of like <laughs> why someone might be doing what they're doing. And then there has to be curiosity, the desire to know more about them. And once we do that for them, maybe they do it for us. Maybe, mm-hmm. but maybe they don't. Yeah. And I think that that is why this is such nuanced work and why it is so difficult and so much easier just to press likes and shares and follows and unfollows and let that be what how we're relating. But being a human and relating to difference and understanding the differences that we hold just within ourselves, like the amount of differences I hold just as one person <laughs> myself, I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm in conflict with myself all the time. Mm-hmm. So to think that I wouldn't be in conflict with others is almost like hilarious. It's- yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet we try, right? I, try. <laughs> I avoid conflict like the plague until I remember that I have to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's a, it's a part of it. My goodness, I have a feeling I'm going to listen back to this so many times. And I also have a feeling that in like two years, I'm going to listen back to this and be like, Madison, you were circle jerking yourself. Shut up. And so I'm really curious about what's going to come up for me after hearing this. But I, I just, man, I'm, there's so much more here. So much more. Is there anything that you want to say to tie up any loose ends before we go into some rapid fire? Oh, loose ends. I mean, <laughs> uh, maybe just that this is really hard stuff. Um, and that I am so conflicted about it all the time. Like, I know I sound good on the internet, but (laughs) (laughs) like really good. Thank you. You do too. We sound great. Oh, thanks. (laughs) But, uh, you know, inside, deep inside, or even not that deep is like this voice of like troubled, but what if, but what if, but what if, but what if I'm wrong, right? Um, what if Mm -hmm. I'm getting this all wrong all the time? And, um, I don't know, like I, I really struggle um, because these things you and I are talking about, right? Like universal love, transformative justice, um, respecting the other is divine, even when they're our enemy. That these are, they're high stakes things. Um, mm-hmm. And we have to apply them every day. And I think about like all these people voting for Donald Trump, who it seems like, yeah, they don't think that you and I should have rights. <laughs> um, can I love them really? Should I love them really? And yes, boundaries. Yes, we can still fight back while being loving. But, um, you know, I something in me still falls, still falters, even as I press forward. And I just wanted mm-hmm. to share that, like, um, there's never not going to be doubt. <laughs> and maybe, maybe Grace is also accepting that. What do you think? I think... Um... One, I realize I don't even know, I don't think I know the definition of circle jerk, but it's like the confusion I feel. So I'm going to have to Google that because I don't think I actually know what it means. <laughs> <Note to laughs> like, look up circle jerk. <laughs> yes, note to self. I, I'll include the definition in the show notes maybe. Um, I am realizing that, that I think that's why I feel sometimes like I'm spiraling because it's just, it's really complex. And there's mm-hmm. so many facets to this conversation and so many perspectives to take into consideration. And also, 
some of these things are, are deep truths I, I know to be true yeah. that are that are so much richer than one conversation. That's why they've been the deep contemplative practices for like all mystic traditions ever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like this is like an ongoing practice of contemplation or something. <laughs> so. I guess. I mean, we're not going to come up with the answer tomorrow. Jeez. Gosh. We sure think we're trying though with our Instagram posts. We really do. <laughs> well, let's do some rapid fire. Yes. Thing. What is your spiritual background? Uh, I'm evangelical, but I'm also Chinese, which means that I was also weirdly raised kind of Buddhist and Taoist at the same time. Interesting. That's really cool. How do you know when you know? part a I never know when I know part b when I feel it yeah what identities have you had to let go of to own your fullness today Mm, had to let go of Christian uh Mm -hmm. had to let go of correct had to let go of savior had to let go of uh had to let go of victim Mm -hmm. had to let go of knowing the answers had to let go of, um, I'm always wrong also. And um, I had to let go of uh, finished, like being a finished person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's never going to happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> what are you most enjoying learning right now? Mm, so many things. I'm always in a million classes. Um, a step away from the contemplative. I'm like in a Buteco breathing course right now. <laughs> And it's really helping me breathe better. So I'm loving that. Uh, that's good. We need that right now. Yeah, breath. What does grace mean to you? Mm, grace is the love that we'll always have, even when we don't deserve it. Mm. What is your go-to coffee shop order? London Fog. Mm. <laughs> I have to tell you, there's a shop up the street that does an Amsterdam Fog. And what they, is that? I... The, The only thing I know is that it's green because they put spirulina in it. Amazing. And I feel really healthy when I drink it and it's delicious. And so I have no idea if it's good for me, Um, but I order it a lot. (laughs) Can we please get Amsterdam fogs together sometime? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Just, just fly on down to Springfield, Missouri. Seems like a good time for that. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. And last question is what do you want? Mm. I want lasagna. Yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, Kai Cheng, where can people go to find more of your writing and your own contemplative processing on these deep mystic traditions combined with (laughs) activism, combined with (laughs) healing work, combined with transformative justice? Ah, Um, Yeah, folks can find me on Instagram. I'm at Kai Cheng Tom. Um, I'm occasionally on Twitter, but less and less, thank God, these days. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, I've got books. If if folks want to buy my books, I'd be so honored and delighted. Um, The book that's most relevant today is probably my essay collection. It's called I Hope We Choose Love. And then I also have a children's book. It's not relevant, but it's very cute. It's called From the Stars in the Sky to the Fish in the Sea. I didn't know about the children's book. That's so fun. (laughs) Thank you for this conversation. It has been rich and I... I'm also just excited to see what it opens up in my DMs after it airs. Yeah, let me know. I want to know what's in there. I will. 
I will. All right. Thank you so much, Kai Ching. Thank you so much, Madison. It's been so fun and such an honor. Thank you for tuning in to Everything Belongs. If you loved this episode, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app so that others might find this podcast too. You can find the show notes and find out more about today's guests by going to madisonmorgan.com backslash podcast. And before you go, I want to tell you about Everything Belongs, the membership. For only $17 a month, join my monthly workshop gatherings that will serve as a playground and sacred circle to learn and explore a spirited life fully expressed in your worth, wholeness, and power. Members will have the opportunity to vote on podcast guests, pick workshop topics, send in questions to be answered live on the call, get a monthly journaling PDF, and members-only access to all of my coaching programs. If you're looking for a place to ground, gather, play, and explore all of the conversations shared here on Everything Belongs, then this is a space for you. For more information, go to madisonmorgan.com backslash membership. And if you're not following and chatting with me over on Instagram, please go do that now and DM me and let me know your favorite part of this episode. I cannot wait to hear from you. And until next time, remember that curiosity can be a portal to a rich life where everything truly belongs. See you next time.